you would, please join me by turning in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 4. I've got an opening illustration I want to begin with. That will hopefully give us a picture of Micah 4. And in this opening illustration, some of you might think this sounds wonderful, and others of you might be horrified. And you'll see in just a moment. I want you to imagine you're hiking in the mountains. You're on a trail making your way through the forest. You've climbed some good-sized hills already. You've gained some elevation. Let's just imagine for the sake that you're feeling great about this progress you've made And then what finally comes into view is the mountain you're heading towards, right? That's that's your goal. That's where you're going. And you're encouraged because it doesn't look all that far away. You know, just a little more up this hill, over this hump, and you'll be there. But what happens too often when you get to the top of the hill. Some of you have experienced this before. You get to the top of the hill only to discover that the mountain you're hiking towards, which looked so near, is actually miles and miles away with a deep, dark valley separating it from you. It had looked so near Because in reality, it's a massive mountain. The scale of it was deceptive. You thought you would pass from one high place to another. But once you're given a better view, you see that it's not just over the hill. It is a long ways off and there is a valley that lies between. And so you're going to have to climb down and make your way through that valley before you can reach the other side. I do hope that picture, keeping it in your mind, will help you to grasp what Micah speaks of in chapter 4. Micah sees a mountain, a mountain that is the destination and hope of God's people. A mountain that is wonderful and glorious. A mountain that God's people greatly desire to summit. But they discover that it's far off. It is a long ways away. It's certain. It is unmovable, but distant. Micah shows the people this mountain, and then he directs their eyes downward to the valley. The valley that lies between them and that mountain. A valley where there is sure to be suffering and toil and struggle. A valley that is much closer. It's not distant but near, and they will soon enter it. And who knows how long it will take them to pass through. Now, why would the Lord show his people the mountain first? Well, I think there's one obvious reason. By showing them the mountain first, they will be strengthened for their journey through the valley. By showing them where things 
are headed, by having that image in their mind, even when they're in the deep places, even when they can't see the high place anymore because of the canopy of trees over them, they will remember and be encouraged to continue on through that long, dark, toilsome valley. I think that's the message of this passage. And it's a message that should resonate with every Christian heart. You know, as believers, we consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As believers, we are encouraged and strengthened by by remembering that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's, That's the mountain. That's the message of this passage. And so what we're going to do is look at the mountain and then the valley. In verses 1 through 8, we'll look at life on the mountain. And then in verses 9 through 13, we will see life in the valley. But first, let's pray before we read our text. Father God, we do pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear those things you would have for us. Father, would we be encouraged and strengthened by your word? Would we be those who sit under it, that we might walk in your ways, so that all of our lives would be changed and transformed by your teaching and your word. We ask that you would do this. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah 4, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine And under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make 
the remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to a threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. And I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you remember where we left off last week? Things were pretty dire. We we read of the Lord condemning the rulers and the prophets and the priests in Jerusalem. He condemns their greed, their trampling and exploitation of the people of God. And the chapter ended with the Lord saying to them, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. That's the warning. Because of their wickedness, the city that God established will be laid waste. The city where God dwelt will be desolate. The mountain of the Lord won't be covered with the secure dwellings of his people, but will be reclaimed by the wilderness. That's where we left off. But do you remember the cycle of prophecy? You know, first, there's the naming and indictment of sin. Second, there's the judgment that is due sin. We saw both of those last week. And third, there's the promise of bright hope for tomorrow. The covenant people of God are promised that their story doesn't end with judgment for sin. For them, rather, the ending is glorious and full of hope beyond hope and grace upon grace. And we get that word of hope today. The holy city on a hill will no longer be ruined and abandoned, but it will be rebuilt by the hand of God himself. So let's begin with those first words we see. 
In verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days. You know, this divine action of rebuilding the house of the Lord will occur in the latter days, which literally means at the back of the days. A day that follows all the rest. A day that comes at the very end. And God gives Micah a view of this day behind all other days. And what does Micah see? The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. You know, we see a couple names here associated with the mountain of the house of the Lord. We see Jerusalem and Zion. Jerusalem is, of course, the capital city of God's people. And Zion is that high place within the city where the temple was located. You know, last month I was in New York City. And when you look at the skyline of New York, there is one building that stands above the rest. It's the One World Trade Center. It's a new skyscraper built right next to the grounds of the two towers that were destroyed in 2001. And the One World Trade Center is the tallest building in New York City. It's the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. And when Molly and I got on the elevator to go up to the very top, I think it took us less than 60 seconds to make it all the way to the top. Wherever you are in New York, you can look out and see that building that is lifted up above all the rest. And Mount Zion was similar. When you looked at the skyline of Jerusalem, you could see it. That high prominent place where all the residents of Jerusalem could look and see and remember that God had promised to live among his people. Zion is the place where the people came to worship God. They went up to it. And Micah proclaims that in the latter days, this special place of worship and fellowship with God will be established forever. This is something that God will do. And when he does, no other place in the world will be comparable. This holy place will have no rivals. There will be no other hills competing to overshadow it. You know, in the the ancient world... Most religions believed that the gods lived on top of the mountains. Which is why very often people would climb up to the tops of mountains and there they would build altars and shrines and temples. And Micah knew this. But he's telling us that there will be one mountain that will rise above all the rest. There will be one God, one temple, one place of worship that will be exalted above all the rest and reign supreme over all the rest. We're then told that this mountain, this house of the Lord where he will dwell, it will no longer be uninhabited. We see this at the end of verse 1 and in verse 2. And peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. I mean, usually we think of streams running down a mountain. Here the image is streams running up it. But it's not streams of water, it's streams of people. People from all over the world. I mean, notice, this is, this is not only ethnic Jews. It's people from everywhere. People who speak all different languages. People who have all types of varying skin and hair colors. They will all be drawn to this great place. Drawn to worship the one true God who is above all the rest. And they're coming enthusiastically. They're singing. You know, I went to New York City to sightsee. Wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. That's not what they're doing. They aren't sightseeing. They're on a pilgrimage to come and worship. They aren't going to this place as tourists, but as disciples. Disciples who long to sit under the word of God and to be taught his ways so that they might walk in them. And the word walking refers to the whole of how we live our lives. It refers to our thinking, our speaking, our acting in accordance with the way of the Lord. That's what they're coming to be taught. As we keep going, we see that this holy mountain isn't some monastery where the worship and teaching of God is confined behind tall stone walls. People from all over the world will stream to it, but then what happens? Something comes back down out into the world. And we're told that it's the law and the word of the Lord. It might be helpful to know that in place of law here, you could also say teaching. What comes out of this high place is the teaching and the word of the Lord that will go forth out into the world. And then we see the effects of this. We see the effects of this advancing victorious divine word. I see four things here that are produced. Justice, peace, contentment, and faithfulness. Justice, peace, contentment, and faithfulness. We see that what goes forth from this mountain into the nations isn't the corruption and the dishonest judges that we saw last week, but true, right, holy justice. What goes forth from this place is peace. We're told that weapons like swords and spears are are no longer needed. I mean, can you imagine living in a world where weapons are no longer needed? Instead, you can just repurpose them to make a domestic tool that you could use around the house. Maybe a shovel, maybe a the, the leg for a table. Who knows? We could get creative. And these aren't needed because there aren't any hostile enemy armies. The people of God are no longer enemies of God. And so they're no longer enemies 
of each other. There's peace. There's also contentment. Being content with what God has given. And this might be harder for us to see if we aren't as familiar with Hebrew poetry, but that's this image here of the man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. He is content with what the Lord has provided for him and his daily needs. One of the commentators I studied, McKay, says, quote, It is the picture of domestic satisfaction. The ideal is that of contentment with the provision the Lord has made for each and the opportunity to enjoy it without being harassed by others, end quote. There's a picture of contentment and thankfulness for all that God has given them. There's also faithfulness. In verse 5, For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we, but we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There is faithfulness. Even though the unbelieving pagans worship lesser false gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Faithfulness will be produced. And can you see why this is good news? Why this is a place where God's people would would want to be? I mean, the Lord is high and lifted up. Peoples from all over the world stream to him to worship and to be taught his ways. This righteousness will go forth to the nations and produce justice and peace and contentment and faithfulness. I mean, this is the utopia that human governments long for. But it's something that only the maker of the heavens and earth can and will accomplish. Last thing we're going to see about this mountain The God who reigns over it will gather the people like shepherds gather sheep. And then he will give them a king who will reign over them forever. We see this in verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. I will make the remnant, all those people who are scattered but remain, I will gather them and make them a strong nation. He's telling them that you who are incapacitated, you who are weak, you who are driven away, you who are disciplined because of your sin, you will be gathered together. And a king from David's line, a king from the former dominion will come and reign over you forever and ever. That's the description of the mountain. And for the people of God, it is good news. I think we can understand that. It is their certain, unshakable, and eternal hope. It's where they want to go. It's where they want to be. But for those in Micah's day, remember, it was far off. It was a distant place one that would be established in the latter days. But what lay right before them? The valley. It's not distant, but present. 
Notice the word now. We see it used in verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, now, now. They are going to be shown what will happen to them now. In their day. Not what God will do in the latter days, but what he will do now. And what they see is that it will be hard. Verse 9 says, why do you cry aloud? Why are you in panic and distress? They're told in verse 10, an enemy army will surround their city. They will be besieged. They will suffer starvation and violence. They will cry out to the Lord. Their human king, their counselor, will be unable to deliver them. They will be like a woman in labor, overcome with pain and helpless to do anything about it. They will experience the Lord's judgment of sin. Their place of refuge and safety that they've been trusting in will collapse. They'll have to camp out in the open country. They'll be taken away as political prisoners to a foreign city. All their treasure will be plundered and carried off as well. The people from many nations will gather against them, and they have malicious intent. They don't simply want to capture and loot. They want to defile Jerusalem. But we're told that this is something the Lord has allowed to happen. The enemies of God's people just think they're doing whatever they want, acting according to their wishes, and they are. But they don't know the thoughts of God Almighty. They don't know that they are pawns in His hand and that He is using them to bring judgment on His spiritually adulterous people. This is the low, hard road that lies before them. And yet there's still hope. Even in the valley. I mean, we see in verse 10, you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. I mean, these these words would remind the people of the Exodus being rescued from Egypt. They would again see and acknowledge God alone as their redeemer. He would act in the valley and rescue them. Their judgment would not be the final word spoken by him. They would be restored. And not only restored, but look at the very end of chapter 4. They would be given power. I mean, the image here is of a strong, unassailable ox treading out grain. An ox with horns of iron and hooves of bronze that would crush the enemies of God and beat them to pieces. And then everything they gained, all the treasure, all the wealth, would be devoted to the Lord and laid as tribute at His feet. This is life in the valley. It's hard but hopeful, a place right before their eyes, a place they can see, but a place that's also transient and temporary. Now, come back to me, because I've got a very important question. How do you and I read Micah 4? How do you and I read this passage today? 
Well, I would like to start by simply saying that the mountain that we saw pictured in the first half of this chapter has come. It is here. We read this passage differently than Micah's original audience would have. And the reason is because we live on this side of the coming and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We read this differently than Micah's original hearers would have. We are uniquely situated. When did Micah say this mountain would be established? In the latter days. And where do we find ourselves right now? In the latter days. Now I'll hedge you off. We are not in the latter days because so-and-so was elected president. We are not in the latter days because of wars and threats of nuclear missiles. We are not in the latter days because of pandemics and vaccines. We are in the latter days. That term refers to the entire period of time between the comings of Jesus. That term refers to the days between his first and second coming, which means we are in the latter days. The Apostle Paul lived in the latter days. Augustine lived in the latter days. John Chrysostom, John Huss, John Calvin, John Bunyan, John Wesley, John Owen, and John Wyndham. No, that's not very humble of me putting my name alongside theirs. It's just, it's just another John. We all live in the latter days. We live between the comings of Jesus, and I'll prove it to you. Think of the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels over and over again. He says things like, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's now language. He tells his disciples, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some of you will not die until you see the kingdom come with the horns of iron and the hooves of bronze trampling and breaking down the powers of darkness. The mountain has come. Elsewhere in the Old Testament prophets, Joel will say that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out. In Hebrews 1, the the very first verse in the book of Hebrews, we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. The coming of Jesus marks the beginning of these latter days and they will continue until he comes again. This is the church age. Well, if we're, if we're in the latter days now, then 
I mean, that affects how we read this text. And so we need to start by asking, what is this mountain of the Lord that he establishes? What is that? Where is the special place where God dwells with his people? Where do his people come joyfully with songs to gather together and sit under the teaching of his word? Where is the place that is filled with souls from every tribe and tongue and nation? Where is the place from which the word of God is sent out to the ends of the earth? It's the church. It's the church. It's the mountain that God has established. You remember what Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus told his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. At the end of Matthew, right before his ascension, he declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have a picture here of the church. Elsewhere, we see her referred to as the bride of Christ. The apostle John speaks of her near the end of the Bible. He he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, very practically, This means that there is no stopping the church. When you look at how the mountain is described in Micah 4, and you apply that to the work of God in the church, there is no stopping it. I don't care what the pollsters tell you. I don't care what you read in the paper. Do not be downcast and discouraged. The church will not fail And the reason it's not going to fail, it's not us. We aren't the reason for the church's success. The reason the church will not fail is because it is God himself who establishes it. I mean, I'd encourage you to take some time this week. Read back over this passage and see how what was a distant hope for Micah is true for us today. I mean, just keep applying stuff. Because our sin was justly atoned for, we should do all we can to uphold justice. Because we have been reconciled to God by the blood of his son, we should strive to live peaceably with all. We are to be content with what the Lord has provided for us, trusting him to care for us and give us all that we need. We are to faithfully walk in his name even when it seems the whole world around us is losing its mind and worshiping something or someone else. I mean, in verses 6 through 8, 
the world badly needs to hear us talk like this. We are the lame. We are the helpless that Christ has brought together. We are those who were driven away and afflicted and disciplined because of our sin, but our faithful God has gathered us to himself. I mean, Peter speaks of this when he wrote the church. He said, Dear church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We are the lame and the helpless the scattered that Christ has brought together. The Lord has made us people from all different places and backgrounds and cultures. He has brought us together and made us one strong nation. And we will be his people and he will be our king from this time forth and forevermore. And while all this is true, And while you hear it, and maybe you say yes and amen, before you get too triumphalistic, remember that there's still the valley to be reckoned with. There's still the low, hard place. The veil of tears where we find ourselves presently. It is transient. It is passing away, but it is still very much present. You know, I encouraged you just a moment ago to read through the passage yourselves. And maybe when you do, you think, what was John talking about? I still see lots of swords and spears. And I still see the need of them. I still see war in the world. I personally know there's grief and distress and crying aloud. I know that there's pain and groaning. What what was John talking about? I feel like an exile living in Babylon. I I know that this, this world is not my home. There are powers that that not only want the church to fail, but have malicious intent. There are powers that want to defile and destroy the church. What was John talking about? seems as if the mountain is still far off. I would respond by saying that the promises of God, what we see described in the mountain, those promises have already begun to be fulfilled but have not yet reached their completeness. Those promises of the past, they began to be fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus and will be finally and completely fulfilled at his second coming. Those promises, think of it this way, God has worked, God is working, and God will work. The kingdom of God has come, it has broken in, but it has yet to reach its full expression. We all understand this. I'll give you some examples. 
We have already experienced God's presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we await the complete presence of God. We already worship, but we know that someday there will be perfect worship. We already experience peace and joy and love, but we know that one day a perfect peace and love and joy will come. We've already experienced a resurrection, but we await a future one. We already participate in a special meal with Christ, but we await the wedding supper of the Lamb. One more. Already we celebrate the victory that Christ won in the past, but we await the final victory that will be won at his final coming. You know, theologians call this the already but not yet. That's where we live. In the already but not yet. You and I, have to see ourselves as belonging to the mountain, but still passing through the valley. The gospel will continue to advance. There is no stopping it. The nations will continue to stream into the church. But those who serve Christ are promised to suffer like he suffered. Those who serve him will suffer until he comes again. The full Realization of life on the mountain only happens when he finally comes again and makes all things new. And until then, you will experience pain. You will cry aloud. You will weep. You will be persecuted. But remember what you've seen. Remember the sight of the mountain. Remember that the work of God is sure and unmovable. It is eternal and unstoppable. And so faithfully continue on towards it. Know that at the end of the day, as Paul said, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We are those who long for that mountain, and belong to that mountain, but still find ourselves in the valley. John Newton wrote of this in the final hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment. And I hope that you'll see it. Let's pray together. Though afflicted, tempest-tossed, comfortless, a while thou art, do not think thou canst be lost. Thou art graven on my heart. All thy walls I will repair. Thou shalt be rebuilt anew, and in thee. It shall appear what a God of love can do. Father God, may we remember. May we remember your promise to your people. May we see 
that it has already broken in and begun. The first victory has been won. Give us the grace and strength to patiently await the second. Give us the grace and strength to continue on through this valley, looking ahead to our final hope, something that is unstoppable, something that is established by your hand. Father, give us confidence and a love for your church. And Father, may what happens in here stream out and bring streams of refreshment and light of righteousness to a world that so desperately needs it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.